hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. In 1860, Lyman Curtis had just finished serving a colonizing mission in St. George. As he finished that mission, 1859-1860, he was drawn to settle, I love this, in Pond Town. Where in the world in Utah is Pond Town? Well, I didn't know. Then I find out that after Lyman Curtis moved to Pond Town, he persuaded the uh, town fathers that they really should rename it something a little more dignified. And so he suggested that they name the town Salem, after his hometown of Salem, Massachusetts. And since the name meant peace, as in City of Peace, the name was adopted, and thus the name of Salem, Utah. Well, as it turned out, the principal water supply for the town of Pond Town was the pond. But then Lyman and his two brothers, George and Moses, saw the possibility of taking a canal out of the Spanish Fork River and by so doing, watering thousands of acres of land between Spanish Fork and Payson. Well, at first, you can imagine, no one was interested. But Lyman made a map showing what could be done and took it before the district judge in Provo and the right to dig the canal was granted. He and his two brothers worked alone all winter at the mouth of Spanish Fork Canyon. Some days they would work all day and then the wind would blow and fill the ditch with sand. They worked with the crudest implements of the time, whatever they could get, short-handled, square-pointed shovels, picks, hoes, and even buckets. And by the next season, they had generated enough enthusiasm that people from Payson, Spanish Fork, and Pond Town joined in. The Curtis brothers were not trained surveyors. And two or three times, the laborers on the canal lost faith in their work and demanded that a surveyor with suitable instruments should be called. Once, County Surveyor Davis of Provo came, and after going carefully over the canal grade, told the men that everything was all right. But to the brothers, he said, it is a mystery to me how you can carry through a piece of work like this with only a spirit level and other instruments of your own make. When it was completed, the canal was two feet deep, eight feet wide at the bottom, and 12 feet wide at the top. It was seven miles long and irrigated 2,000 acres. The land under the canal was laid out in five and 10 acre pieces, and each man could draw lots according to the work that he had done on the canal. 
Lyman became an accurate surveyor with an improvised transit and a homemade water level in laying out roads and canals. Now, although the man's schooling was rudimentary, he was a man of great practical ability. He was successful as a lumberman, a colonizer, a builder, and especially as a farmer. Now, let's back up. What was it that Lyman Curtis was called by Brigham Young to do as a missionary in 1853? Well, that's when he was sent down to southern Utah and northern Nevada. He was later, in 1879, now this is after the canal was built in Salem, It was 1879 when Lyman assisted in the settlement of Price, Utah, and surveyed the first canal in Price. When he had been called by Brigham Young to go to St. George, it was to, quote, take charge of the construction of the canal. Now, this is in Moapa, Nevada. The canal from the Little Muddy River, now Moapa, into southern Nevada. After this was completed, He was sent by Brigham Young to take charge of the building of a canal out of the Santa Clara River below St. George. Okay, now the rest of the story of Lyman Curtis. Lyman Curtis was about 22 years of age. He had marched with Zion's camp. When Zion's camp was disbanded in 1834 in Clay County, Missouri, Sometime after that disbanding, each member was given a patriarchal blessing by Patriarch Joseph Smith Sr. In his blessing to Lyman Curtis, Brother Smith promised that Lyman would be an instrument in the hands of the Lord for doing much good. He was told that even as Moses, he would smite the rock and bring forth water upon the dry land. The story is told in the family history that years later, presumably when Lyman was an old man, he went back to St. George with his son, Asa, to the scene of his labors in southern Utah. It is said that as they went around a point of rock that had shut out the view of the valley, he came around the rock, and instead of seeing the barren, desert landscape of the days when he was digging a canal, a beautiful picture stretched out on every side of growing fields, fruitful orchards, vineyards, and peaceful homes. The transformation was amazing. The sunshine was reflected from the rippling water in the canal that he had worked so hard to build. From his astonishment, his face showed the depth of his feeling as tears of joy ran down his cheeks. That's Lyman Curtis, the man who was promised he would bring water from a stone. Now, when I told that story, and I brought it back for a reason, when I told you that story, I'm sure that some of you expected something different than how that blessing and promise was fulfilled. I tell you that story not only to bring honor to one of our great pioneers and to his posterity today, but also to point something out on a much broader scale. The scriptures 
are full of prophecies and promises of events that are going to occur in the future. I have learned by my own experience, just with the number of years I've had, that how I think God is going to fulfill his promises isn't always quite the way he actually does it. As I've said before, be careful never to put God in a box. You can go this far, say this much, but you got to do it this way on my time frame. No, that's not a wise course of action. The Lord fulfilled the promises to Lyman Curtis, but not the way people today might have expected. All right, next story, and I promised you this one as well. And again, I didn't even realize I had left you hanging on this, but I did, so I'm sorry, and here's the rest of the story. This took place a number of years ago. It was a cold winter morning, and I was out jogging just after sunrise. And this was when we lived in Blackfoot, Idaho, and I was running along the greenbelt out near the ponds. I wasn't sure, but something didn't look quite right. As I got closer, I could see something was definitely wrong. It was a bright, cold December morning. I was right out by the Snake River, and there he was, standing on the bare blue ice at the water's edge, all alone. That was my first clue that something was wrong. Geese, Canadian geese, mate for life, I'm told. And this bird was all alone. Where was his mate? As I drew nearer, I saw his right leg. It hung limp and askew beneath him, not bearing any weight. Now, I've been around long enough to know that normally after the seasonal hunt, the geese are wary for a time. But this bird just stood there and watched me as I ran toward him. Finally, when I got too close for his comfort, which was very close, he gave a wobbling little hop and lunged forward into his takeoff, but the leg collapsed under him, nearly pitching him headlong into the water. I stopped, and with pity I watched him struggle to get aloft, and he made it. As he flew away to the north, I watched him go, his right leg not tucked up under his body, but flopping crazily beneath him. This was a goose destined to a difficult existence until someone or something prematurely ended his life. Well, I went on with my run, but for days I couldn't forget the image of that goose. I thought about him. I wondered what happened to him. And as near as I can figure, this is my surmise. That wounded goose is like so many of us, crippled or handicapped more or less for life by choices we've made. Or worse, foolish choices made by others. Agency is a dangerous gift. I repeat that. Agency is a dangerous gift. Yes, we may choose. We must choose. But if we are not careful, we may permanently injure ourselves and or others. 
And though the Almighty sometimes rescues us from bad choices, my experience has been that a choice once made in mortality is a consequence to be lived with for a long time. Agency is a powerful, dangerous gift. Yes, forgiveness for past choices may will come. Our Lord will forgive and we won't be punished, but often that does not alter the mortal trajectory of those choices. And you know, somehow I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I could just picture that goose who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on how you look at it, and he took flight with his mate, a hunter, shot, killed his mate, wounded him, through no fault of his own, through someone else's choice, as it were, he was wounded for life, and how long he would live before something put an end to him, I do not know. That's why I say, the parable of the lone goose, whether someone else's agency or your own, be careful, choose wisely, and find peace where you are. And if agency has brought upon you or me consequences that hurt, well, sometimes those consequences just have to be dealt with and lived with for the rest of our days. And I can think of many examples. The Lord will forgive but not always does he take away the mortal consequences. All right, next story. Alfred Boaz Lamson. He lived in western Michigan in 1842. He recalled the following. I had bought the land the old log schoolhouse was on. And while framing a blacksmith shop in which to ply my trade, for I was a blacksmith as my father was before me, who should appear but two Mormon elders, Joseph Kind and Elder Pendleton. They first told me who they were and then asked to be directed to some family that would take them in. I referred them to my mother. They wanted a place to preach in. I said that I happened to own that schoolhouse and they could preach there. My mother took care of them and I got them an audience. All my neighbors came, he said. Now, Alfred Boaz Lamson, I think he went by Boaz, was not a believer. In fact, maybe he wasn't even a Christian. In his own words, he was an infidel. He said, I thought I was a bigger infidel than Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll was a famous atheist from the 19th century. And he continues, and he says, I read the Bible for spite. Can you imagine reading the Bible to find fault with it? But he said, I had taken a heap of notice of what was said at that meeting, meaning by the two Mormon elders, and I knew it was Bible gospel all straight, end of quote. Well, at the same time this is going on, he's first introduced to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Something inside of Boaz was drawing him west, 
Go west, young man. Go west, young man. Well, he determined that that's exactly what he was going to do. He was going to go to Oregon country and trap for furs. So accordingly, he sold out and set out for St. Louis to join a fur company. I would presume he went down the river. Along the way, he stopped off at Nauvoo, Illinois, and put up for the night at the local motel, which had happened to be in 1843, the Mansion House. Now, he had heard about the prophet Joseph Smith. He wanted to meet the prophet that he had heard so much about. Now, this is quoting. He said, this is Boaz, presently, he came in and sat down. Lauren Walker put a towel about the prophet's shoulders and dressed his hair for him, which I would presume gave him a haircut. After which he, Joseph, got up and came over to me. I'll imagine this, lifting me bodily out of the chair and asked, Young man, where are you from and where are you going? Well, I told him where I hailed from and that I was bound for St. Louis to join a fur company going to Oregon, to which Joseph said, I love this, when you join a fur company at St. Louis to go to Oregon, I will take Nauvoo on my back and carry it across the Mississippi and set it down in Iowa. And then he added, I have use for you. <laughs> Boaz said, the prophet made a deep impression upon me. He said, I felt that he was superior to any man I had ever seen. In fact, if any other man had asked me those questions, I should have very soon told him it was none of his business. But what use the prophet could have for me, I could not see. End of quote. It wasn't long after that, according to the family records, Still not a member of the church, Alfred Boaz Lampson fell sick with the ague there in Nauvoo. That's the disease that we know today as malaria that had taken so many lives, and he became very seriously ill. And according to the family records, he was given a priesthood blessing by the prophet Joseph Smith and miraculously healed. Boaz continued, I heard him preach many times, and I have not forgotten the things he preached. He went further in explaining matters and made them clearer to me than any other man. He spoke with thrilling and marvelous power for good, which I shall never forget to my dying day. I pause here, my friends. Why do I tell you that story? Because Boaz was there. He left a first-person account. I was there. I saw. I heard. I remember. And when he said that Joseph spoke with a thrilling and marvelous power for good, he was a witness who cannot be denied. He continued, The prophet was a large man, broad-shouldered and heavy-set. He said, there are no pictures that do justice to him, end of quote. Well, Boaz later said, I was slow to acknowledge my conversion to Mormonism. 
but I finally felt to accept baptism and received that ordinance in the Mississippi River under the hands of Elder Truman Gillette. Now, if you can follow this. So is the account as recorded in the Utah Genealogical Magazine. The interviewer, the one who was interviewing Alfred and wrote all this down as he dictated it, the interviewer wrote, as Alfred Lamson finished his story, he leaned back in his old armchair, which had been made by his own hands in early days in this valley, and seemed lost in thought. His white hair, bleached by many winters, lay soft and beautiful about his strong head. His once sinewy arm rested on the handle of his rocker. What a world of thought in that glance backward upon a lifetime of work and adventure. Yes, the writer said, a lifetime. For the sands were all but run. For shortly afterwards, he, Alfred Boaz Lampson, was called to meet his maker and render his account to the Most High for the stewardship he had held. I love to read the accounts of those who knew Joseph personally. I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet by the witness of the Holy Ghost, but I know even further and more sure that Joseph was a prophet and what kind of man he really was by the first-hand accounts of those who knew the man personally. They build my faith. This next experience is personal. This was a number of years ago. It had been a particularly hectic three days for Debbie and me. It was our first experience with New York City. Now, I'd flown into New York before, in and out, but I had never toured downtown. We had flown with 95 other people into Newark, New Jersey, to begin a two-week cruise and tour of New England and Canada. My job was to help lead the tour and serve as the educator. On Saturday, we toured New York City with our group, taking in downtown, Manhattan, the Liberty Tower, the Statue of Liberty, Battery Park, and all kinds of things. For those who have never experienced the culture of downtown New York, it is, it was, for me, like a journey to a foreign country. They really do things differently there. At the end of that day, we returned to our hotel filled and exhausted at the same time. The next day, we were up early and headed for our ship. By the end of that day, Debbie and I had everyone on board, no one overboard, and all settled into staterooms. Now, it was a Sunday night. There were those in the group who wanted to have a church service, so we arranged for it, and the ship graciously allowed us the use of a comfortable albeit a little small, conference room. At the appointed hour, our group came and quietly took a seat and waited to see what would happen. More or less, everyone there was a stranger to each other, all a little timid. 
Moreover, notwithstanding they were from many different denominations, this was a far cry from the worship environment any of them were accustomed to. They were from all different churches, but not very often had they had church on a cruise ship, and that not in a chapel. Well, the agenda was announced, and my wife, Debbie, stood up to lead the opening hymn. They sang, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Oh, and did they sing. Of course, there was no piano, but the power of their voices and their harmony washed over me like a flood. I can still feel it. I stopped singing just to listen to them. I felt a palpable sensation of warmth and light come over me and a lifting of the weight of all the stresses and worries of the previous three days. I was renewed, humbled, and ever so grateful to that little ecumenical group. A week later, near Prince Edward Island, we held another such service in that room, and it was even more powerful. They were no longer strangers. That experience caused me to reflect. So gradually had the light and warmth of the Lord's wonderful presence dimmed within me with the stresses of my work that I had not even perceived what I had lost until I found it again. When they sang, suddenly it was as though I woke up and realized, oh, I have moved away from the light. I believe it is the same for all of us who, for whatever reason, sometimes, not even sometimes willingly, take a vacation from God. That is precisely why the Almighty invites us into His presence every day in prayer and scripture study and every week in church to keep the fires of faith lit. That experience has been repeated for me so many times with tour groups in the Gulf of Alaska, in England, and in the Far East, and in Israel, all over the world, worshiping with groups of people of different Christian faith. And always they bring the fire when they sing. Another story. If you listen carefully, especially in the early spring, and even this time of year as winter's coming on, you will likely hear this rather unremarkable and monotonous sound outside your window. My wife and I used to wake up in the morning with flocks of these little critters right outside our window, just setting up a cacophony of sound. The tiny little bird called the sparrow. Now, I guess I'm a strange one because I love sparrows. A flock of these used to frequent our back patio, and they gave me occasion to sit, watch them, study, 
and ponder. And this is what I learned. In 1851, the sparrow was introduced into the United States from Europe. They first came ashore in Brooklyn, New York, 1851. Now, the sparrow is found across nearly all of North America and a good portion of South America as well. There are so many sparrows out there. They're everywhere. Homes, parking lots, storefronts, farmyards, forests. They're one of the most common and studied of birds. They eat just about anything, nest about everywhere, and they never leave. You've noticed that. They're here all year long. They're a highly social bird and are often found in huge flocks. Because of their large numbers, they can be a little bit aggressive, even stealing nests and driving other species of birds away. Hence, sparrows have come to be associated with the common, the vulgar, and the unwanted. Sparrows are, check me, the most unnoticed of birds. Even their very song bespeaks their value to society. Cheap. Now, you know I'm not just talking about sparrows. Even though I do have an interest in birds and sparrows and geese and so forth. No, there's more than that. So what Jesus meant when he said to his apostles, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Matthew 10, 29. Sparrows were so common, even in Jesus' day, as to have no value, two for a farthing less than half a cent. And yet even these most common of birds were noticed one by one by Heavenly Father. And then, to bolster the courage of these chosen men as they ventured away from the Master for the first time as missionaries, he said, Fear not, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So it is. The next time, my friend, you see a flock of sparrows, remember, God knows every one of them. He notices every one of them at every moment. And if them, then surely you and me. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.